This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Messy Game World Institutions. A chat with illustrator Rachel Kahn. Global Crime. Mapped. And allying with Japan... Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The spray of papers across the table... The fact that no one put the pizza away, the rings left by the Mountain Dew cans left on the coffee table down in the basement tell us that we've entered a messy, an exceptionally messy version of the gaming hut. And Robin, this messiness is not merely evidence of our slovenliness and sloth, it is also a creative inspiration. And what do we know about messiness? So what I thought we'd talk about this time is how to make your institutions in your fictional setting, your game setting, or even the setting that you're writing about in fiction or the screenplay or whatever it is that you're working on, how to make them seem more real by scuffing them up. Uh, Often as uh, world builders, we make the mistake of making things make a lot of sense. (laughs) I think that is part of the temptation of world building, that we think we could do a better job of it than messy old reality does. Uh, And that uh, it's easy to think of, well, here's how this system works, and here's how this other system interacts with it. But if you just look at any institution that you have ever interacted with, it is uh, messy and may have uh, structures in it that actually uh, work against its their own stated purposes. There are th- things where an organization might have one mission statement, but actually be doing something quite different. You have people within a structure that are working at uh, different purposes. I think it adds an element not only of realism, but gives you interesting plot hooks. If you can take an organization and look at how it would really work, Uh, with all the different interests at play within it than how it would work in an idealized world. Um, Now, often when we add that level of scuffness to an institution, the default choice is just to say, well, it's actually all run by evil schemers who are constantly trying to backstab and destroy one another. Yes. Which is an element of many real-world institutions and businesses and so forth, but it's not necessarily the sole governing reason why something 
might be messed up. So Ken, do you want to sort of propose an organization uh, and how it would work uh, ideally, and then we'll start messing it up? Oh, okay. Let's propose a uh, a guild, and let's say that they are a guild of uh, magicians, because that uh, lets us be a good fantasy guild, and they are set up to sort of make sure that people don't uh, cast evil spells, and they do cast good spells, and they act as the hiring hall. If you show up in town and you're new and they say, oh, we've been looking for the all-seeing eye of Agamotto, why don't you go into that dungeon full of hill giants, uh, which we have calculated are about as strong as you are, uh, and, and clear them out and take the all-seeing eye of Agamotto and bring it back, and we'll pay you you know, a sumptuous sum in Electrum, and you can go off and buy... Uh, suits of armor, and and will you know give you uh, plus one swords and you know whatever else. And they and, stroke their beards and say, "How would you like to go against the giants?" Against giants, the giants 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 giants, 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 And they say, "Ah, eh, not so much." Um, do you have uh, anything being held by a smaller, weaker race? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, any lower level? Yes, against the kobolds, perhaps. Practice on that would work. Um, but but that's what the guild is, it, it, and it, it exists throughout the. The sort of civilized world of of your of your continent of your of your fantasy continent, so that it has chapters in all the major cities, and they um, uh, and they stay strictly neutral in in wars and battles, and uh, they they uh, they're they're above it all. They're a, they're an academic sort of like the Ars Magica Covenant, except uh, more fantasy y. So the obvious choice to scuff them up is to say, but secretly they're all evil magicians and they're gathering all of this information and magical uh, stuff in order to uh, one day launch a coup and take over the world. And that uh, is interesting in one sense. It's sort of a uh, pasting over of basic conspiracy theory into your fantasy world. It creates one explanation for everything, but it goes back to that, oh, but it's just... Of one thing. Mm -hmm. And it also means that the adventures you set up with that are too samey samey because all of the times that they send you off to the Elsing Eye of Agamotto, they then betray you and don't keep your lap with Electrum. They kill you with demons. Right. And then, then they're just Mr. Johnson with the exactly. nicer beards. Tiresome Mr. Johnson. Yeah. So uh, instead, let's posit that there are a bunch of different pressures on this organization. Um, first of all, let's say from within. So... Uh, if you are a member of the Magician's Guild, uh, so does every magician have to be a member of the Magician's Guild, or is it something where the elite magicians, do you think, get uh, elected to or chosen for? I, I think that it's a situation where every magician that is anybody is expected to be in the Guild, because the Guild offers a degree of training and access to spell books that other magic users just don't have. So if you think of them as sort of the Ivy League, you can succeed without being an Ivy League graduate uh, or Oxford and Cambridge in, in Britain, but uh, why would you, for goodness sake? And one is assumed that if, if anything is going to be done, it's going to be done by a graduate of one of those magical academies, that these are the, that the Magic Guild is the only guild worth speaking of. And of course, there's hedge magicians and individual necromancers, but they can't really stand up to the, the intellectual throw weight of the guild itself. Right, uh, but they're not going to go and hunt you down. No, no, that, that, that would be unseemly. Right. Um, so that means that it is something that you want to be part of for status reasons. Right. That, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Magician's Guild, tells everybody else that you are worthy and powerful and smart and wise. And so that means that there is a social advantage to being part of it. However, like serving on the board of a big charity or corporation or anything sort of like analogy in our world uh, that is sort of has an honorary quality to it and you're expected to devote your time to, some magicians are going to be more interested in doing that than others. And yes. perhaps the magicians who are most interested in, in that are the ones who have either a commercial purpose, the ones who, you know, want to polish their resumes so that they get more clients, or the ones who are uh, social climbers, or the ones who are uh, power seekers, who just like the uh, thought of having authority. Whereas the very best magicians, the ones who are back home working on their vat creatures or their new 10th level spells, they don't want to give that level of work and effort to an organization that's essentially a, a volunteer organization that all the things that they want, which is more time to work on their thing, the guild is the opposite of. And so that tells you something about the leading figures is that they're either status-obsessed, 
uh, or uh, money obsessed or uh, power obsessed. And so what does that mean when you go apply to find out where the next juicy dungeon is? How does that change where they send you? Well, they'll send you to dungeons that, by their existence, threaten one of those things, right? They threaten a trade route uh, for the money-obsessed. So if there's a really powerful necromancer who looks like he's going to set up his own magical school of necromancy, maybe he's the guy that they send you to clean out because then there would be a second source of magical status. Or they send you after... A, a dungeon that is under the protection of, or a dungeon that has some connection to a rival of one of the magicians in civilian life, right? That if the magician is the uh, emperor's nephew, they will not necessarily be sending you against dungeons that are protected by the emperor's manticore guard. They'll send you against the other dungeons. Another possibility that occurred to me when you were listing off th- thing, ways this could go wrong is that maybe... The guys who put in the the hours at the meeting have an agenda that is larger than themselves, right? That they say, there's a real threat in this world uh, from dragons. And if there are too many dragons, they're going to breed catastrophically and overrun uh, humanity and kill us all because they're immortal and they're hard to kill and they can breathe fire and they've uh, controlled all the money. And so they're preventing the economy from going. And dragons are a real threat. And so guys who are really concerned about the dragon threat are the guys who go and they, they put in the extra work because what they want to make sure is that more guys get sent, more adventurers get sent out to clean out dragon hordes as opposed to, you know, hunt down artifacts or simply expand the purview of magical knowledge in a more academically neutral way because the dragon threat takes precedence and you have to make sure that, you know, we have to, you know, quench the dragon threat. And so maybe they send you the dungeon, the kobolds, because kobolds are just dragonits. They're just... Um, everyone knows that kobolds are like uh, baby dragons waiting to happen. And so you have to, to clear them out as well. And so the giants get a free pass, perhaps. Right. And that also means that the dragons will come to identify the uh, Magician's Guild as their enemy. Mm-hmm. And they aren't necessarily... There may well be the case where there's a strong opposition within the, the Magician's Guild. There might be two factions... There might be the side that is, uh, hey, let's live and let live with these dragons. Uh, they're off in the mountains, other places. You guys are just looking for an enemy to to unify yourself. And that's because your political agenda with the emperor, who's your pal. But maybe the emperor needs people to fear dragons, but dragons aren't that big a threat. Let's not antagonize them versus the anti-dragon faction. And so that brings in all of those other things, right? The social climbers are going to be part of the uh, anti-dragon faction, the... Uh, uh, power seekers uh, might be, or you know, they might be on the other side where their side is being squished out. So they want to make sure the uh, they protect the magician's purview against uh, making the organization just sort of the cat's paw of the emperor. So you can have uh, sort of temporal politics start to uh, mess with what the guild is doing. And this needn't be a situation where they're actually hosing you, right? That they it may well be that if you go and uh, attack the Cobalt Dungeon, that there's just as much treasure and experience points and cool stuff there as there is uh, in the, the Giant's Castle. But it just has... A and diff- there certainly is going to be in the Dragon Mountain. Right. But it just colors what it is that you do so that once you start showing up for the Magician's Guild, it also gives the players a choice, right? Is that they, they might show up and the, the guy on duty says, well, I have this uh, Cobalt uh, Dungeon that we've just discovered. Do you guys look... Uh, uh, pretty right as rain. We're going to send you there. And as they're heading out the door, somebody, pss, pss, he's part of the anti-dragon faction, but those guys are causing big trouble. I would really appreciate it if he, he, I have an even better dungeon map uh, and the, the giants are not going to come back into the city and launch reprisals against us the way that the uh, dragons would, because they don't fly or breathe flame and they get woozy at low elevations. Mm. So this is a much better dungeon. And so that then... Uh, assuming you know you have two modules that you're willing to pull out and run either one, that gives the players a choice of what to do and how to interact with this organization rather than just being the sort of wrapper on the premise that tells you what the adventure is about. And you you can, again, you can pull it into a, a, the dimension of time, right? You can say that the Ma- Magician's Guild, way back in the primordial times, it was founded because uh, all the magicians had to work together to stop uh, the demon army. And so it's in the it's in the bylaws that if there's a demon, 
The Magician's Guild has to go stop it. And the Magician's Guild now, they're like, well, there haven't been a lot of demons, and they're pretty low-level. And clerics, it's really more a cleric job than a magician job to stop a demon. They've got all the exorcisms. Let's just let the temples take care of it. It's it's easier on the politics. But there is that thing in their bylaws that if you, if you uh, make them, you can send them out after a demon. And so maybe they pick your characters and they say, you guys go deal with a demon. And it's just a political face saver. It's just that way it keeps the temples off our back for a while. But because it used to be all about the demons and now it's all about the dragons, they still get lots of contributions from the simple peasantry who never see a dragon, but demons are all around them, blighting crops and, and causing a murrain on the, on the cattle and whatnot. And so they have to sort of keep the demon thing in the, in the paperwork, but they're not really as concerned about demons. And if you want to do real demonology, you kind of have to do it either with a necromancer or in a clerical temple. And then there's a lot of academic politics. It's like, why are you over there and not over here? And so, well, I want to do demon work. Well, we're the demon guys. Well, you're kind of not. So you can change the agenda from within. If you go and you take down the necromancer castle and you bring his demon library into the magician's guild and you say, now you have the best demon library in the land. Let's get to demon hunting. No one in the magician's guild wants to, but they can't stop you because of their historical charter and because their rep amongst the common people is, well, whatever else happens, you can buy an evil eye charm from the magicians and then that will keep you safe from demons. And that gives you the possibility of sort of more personalizing the institution because you are deciding who you ally yourself with, which will inevitably, since there are academic, you know, English department faculty style politics, that means that if you ally yourself with, uh, with Zoran, that uh, Albemarle is just going to see you as, a, as an obstacle and try and get rid of you. Right. So which which of those guys do you want as your patron? You can't have the whole Magician's Guild is not going to have your back. And not being able to ally with the Magician's Guild means forsaking a big advantage. But you are deciding uh, not only who you want as your friend, but who you want uh, messing with you. And again, that can be a way that the players can feel that they have shaped the course of the campaign because... Maybe they want to ally with the uh, necromancer against the uh, sort of long-winded plant magician or vice versa, and that changes the flavor of everything that uh, follows, uh, and that makes that organization uh, seem much less like a plot dispenser than something that is alive and complicated and that changes within it can relate to the sort of more adventure things that you're doing. And then as the campaign goes on, you you know, there might become an open war between the plant magicians and the necromancers or the anti-dragon or the pro-dragon uh, factions, and that could become part of your big plot, or that could just be humming along in the background, making things seem more real and detailed and nuanced. And if you allied with the necromancer because you like his demon stance, and that has made the plant long-winded plant magician angry at you, but the long-winded plant magician is a big... Uh, forefront of the anti-dragon side, people will be coming up to you and saying, how come you're not anti-dragon? Do you or, do you not believe that the dragons are a threat? And you're like, you're I, objectively pro-dragon. I don't have enough information about dragons. Well, let me give you some literature and have you, have you attend a bunch of lectures by the long-winded plant wizard. And then you wind up on sides of controversies that you aren't necessarily part of one way or the other because you've made other sets of decisions but like you say in that sort of english department politics of the of the wizards guild being in favor of shakespeare means you're automatically against virginia wolf even if you're not right right well i think we've uh, complicated uh, people's magicians guilds as as much as <laughs> it, they can stand and it's time to move on to another segment Now it's time for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And in this instance, I am talking to illustrator Rachel A. Kahn. Uh, she's going to talk about the business of gaming from the point of view of an illustrator who uh, has just kind of started but has really filled up her uh, freelance plate with a lot of stuff because she's uh, very talented and very versatile. One thing I should warn you about is that the audio recording device I was using was set to a really unforgiving pause 
omitting setting for uh, I don't know how I managed to do that, but I did. So anyway, you're going to hear weird little audio jumps, which are annoying, but mostly don't wreck the content any. The one exception is she refers to uh, talking to a client that specializes in sort of very slick CGI or airbrush style. And the name of that client is kind of clipped off and it's Fantasy Flight. So anyway, uh, I've introduced it. So let's launch into my interview with Rachel Kahn. So first of all, Rachel, tell me what people might know your work from. I have work in the Hillfolk books, uh, both Hillfolk and the Drama System Companion. And I have work in the award-winning Call of Cthulhu uh, one-shot that they did, the quick quick start for 7th edition, and then quite a lot of work in the 7th edition is just out in PDF right now. So how did you get from uh, being interested in possibly doing stuff in the field to doing it? This is a, a fun question for you to be asking me because it, uh, it was uh, your uh, kind faith in my abilities, but uh, to, to frame it so that other people could use this advice. Uh, what I did was I had a portfolio and I had been in school and I was preparing a portfolio to start a very general job hunt. I was looking to freelance and I had work that was probably applicable to a few different industries. And I happened to know you, a game designer and developer who also works very closely with publishers, and I asked you to take a look at it. So that would be, that would be step one. <laughs> Just get someone in the industry to give you some feedback. Right, so network, network, network. Yeah, definitely know, uh, know people who are making things, whether it's uh, in person, as I have the pleasure of doing by being in your playtest group here, or whether it is via the internet, via Google Plus or Twitter. But uh, Because you're plugged into a whole bunch of other different <laughs> scenes as well, right? You're involved in indie uh, video game production, and uh, what are some of the other things that you've done? Uh, definitely indie video games and some small mobile games, and I also do self-publish my own comics, so just little uh, sort of Sunday funny style comic about Conan the Barbarian that I do myself, and a collaborative website called Wheeled Comics that I run with a friend for our fantasy. So uh, that sort of points to the fact that you maybe these days as uh, an illustrator or someone in, in any creative field want to look at more than just one field and have feelers out in all directions, and presumably uh, the comic is something that you uh, could self-start on, but you know, know a bunch of people in that field too, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that the comic did for me, uh, writing a comic about Conan is going to interview love Conan, which is going to overlap with a lot of different industries. But for me, directly, it overlapped with the gaming industry, where I had done some work with, with you and Pelgrane, and through that comic, met a bunch of other game developers and writers and publishers who also loved Conan and decided that it would be fun to work with me on their games when they found it that I also illustrated. So uh, you've been at Gen Con a couple of times now, two Twice. times. So the first time you went there, what did you uh, do to try and widen your circle of contacts and how well it worked? I think the first time I went, I was very overwhelmed. What I, what I did do was bring a portfolio and bring a lot of business cards but mostly I followed around you and the Pelgrane crew and sort of uh, took the time to get to feel the lay of the land and, and see who was publishing what at Gen Con and watch the Ennies and see sort of what was going on in the industry because I didn't really have a, a finger on it before then. Right, and that's something that you, and whatever your, the creative thing you want to do in role playing, do your research ahead of time and know who's who and what they're doing because uh, I would often, you know, working in a booth have artists come up with a portfolio and they open it up and it's their anime style art. Well, if they'd done any research on Pelgrane, which is the booth I've been standing at for years, they would know that their Pelgrane doesn't yet do an anime line and they're wasting their time by doing that. Uh, so once you sort of, uh, uh, do you have other examples of, of ways that that research sort of paid off for you? I have, I have some examples of some mistakes I've made that I would recommend not making. Even better. <laughs> one, of the, one of the first things that I had on my list as a publisher to look at was Fantasy, because they produce a lot of board games that I enjoy. But if I had taken about 30 seconds to look at their art beside my art, I would have realized that we had some major stylistic differences, uh, especially at that stage in my own artistic development, where they largely work in a very polished, uh, airbrushed CG style, and I'd been doing a lot of things that were meant to look like watercolors done digitally with outlines and sort of rough painterly aspects to them. 
So that portfolio interview consisted of the very patient art director telling me very kindly that I was going to need to make work that looked like their work before she was good enough for them to work with me. And is that something you tried to do or did you decide to rather specialize in people who were looking for stuff more like what you're already working on? I think it's a, it's a matter of sort of short term and long term. So knowing what I had in my portfolio, I went around to publishers who actually would be interested in that kind of art at that time. But knowing that I want to expand my client base, I'm now working on art that better resembles some of the art you would see in the Fantasy Flight or in some of the bigger publishers in hopes of having a portfolio that will be relevant to them next year at Gen Con. One of the things I've noticed about your work is that you are very consciously broadening the things that you can do. A lot of artists, even really wonderful artists, are very, very specialized. And so you might get someone who's really good at drawing cool character poses but they don't draw horses, or someone who is uh, very good at doing tech, and that's what you hire them for. But if you want a person in the shot with a spaceship, you're out of luck, whereas you do everything from like, uh, realistic uh, animal portraits of, of bunnies to uh, one of the, your images in uh, Call of Cthulhu 7 is this cool fight scene that has this dynamism and comic book sort of style to it, and finding people who do great action uh, on a role-playing budget is sometimes very difficult. Is that something that you're very conscious of or is it just a, as a result of your taking what's offered to you and then tackling the challenges as the um? I definitely believe in, uh, especially when you're starting out, taking what's available and doing at it. But I think for me, part of what uh, broadens my subject matter is my work in indie comics and indie video games because if you're going to work and do an entire game with someone, you're not going to have a very good working relationship if they need horses and tech and a fighting scene and sort of a title designed and you only really want to do and are only qualified to do one of those four things. Yeah, so I always joke that the hardest thing for an artist to do is a uh, guy on horseback with a uh, laser rifle in front of a castle, that almost nobody can do that. Um, so uh, and to flip it around a bit for people who are working in role-playing as uh, writers or designers and find themselves giving uh, art directions to people, what is it that you find helpful in a commission? What is it, what sort of style of uh, art order do you uh, want to work with? Is it, do you want something that is very uh, sort of simple and straightforward and hits the couple of points and, uh, and then lets you run with that? Or do you want a very detailed uh, art order? What, what works for you? Well, for, for me, just to specify this is me, and I'm not every artist for sure. Um, I thought I booked every artist, to be you know, honest. I couldn't connect with them psychically today. Internet is down. But uh, for me, what I really enjoy is someone who knows sort of the key details in a piece and the feel that they're looking for. So if I'm illustrating something and it's got to serve a specific purpose in the book, I want them to be clear about that because that's going to help me make the image do that. If that means that they tell me exactly what the image is going to look like, then so be it. But if that means that they're going to tell me we need to show off this mechanic, this player mechanic in, in the book, so can you please have someone using a gun in this picture? That's fine too, as long as it's clear. But the other, the other side of it, and especially working with Pelgrane on period piece stuff and working with Call of Cthulhu on period piece stuff, having them be specific about those details, about what sort of research and what sort of era really helps me nail those details and we don't have to go through a long editing process afterwards of changing the hat and the car and the gun to make it all fit into the time period chosen. So when you're looking at other people's illustrations and there are people who are not quite yet nailing it, what do you see as the things that uh, you most often see as something that, uh, in general, a starting artist needs to do more. I think everybody has their own challenges, for sure. But one of the one of the things that I, I hear a lot of people struggling with is getting consistent lighting and perspective. So if you are good at drawing figures, sort of in a nice long shot with the camera at about shoulder height, you're not always going to get to do that. And so people can find it very challenging to take the camera up and show a more dramatic angle or show someone lying on the ground or get all of the architecture into perspective. And half of that is just doing the math, doing like laying down the perspective lines and the vanishing points, putting the figure in a box 
and working out the foreshortening just really slowly and specifically by hand. And the other half of it is getting the lighting to make sense. And lighting is just practice and research, working from life and working from movie still and doing a ton of it over and over again. Um, and are there research, uh, sorry, resources on the internet that you would point people to if they are, uh, a lot of people, for example, start from uh, a background of drawing stuff that looks like what's already being done and quite often drawing, you know, comic books so that they're, you know, drawing Jack Kirby by way of whoever the 80s Jack Kirby was and whoever the current day Jack Kirby was. It all goes back to Jack Kirby and Jack Kirby don't look like human beings at all. His <laughs> abstraction is based on humanity and then there's layers and layers of abstraction. So if you uh, don't have the benefit of an art school education but you do want to up your game in those sort of technical aspects, are there uh, resources that uh, you would point people to or is it just go take an art? Uh, go take an art class is step, step one, but if that's not available for time or money or location reasons, the internet has a lot of resources. There are sort of online figure drawing classes that are just slideshows where they've curated a series of images of people that are common figure drawing poses that you can work from. Uh, I would say learning to draw from life or from, from, from reference of life is really step one, even if it seems like annoying math homework in comparison to drawing an awesome dragon. But if you think about it as the pieces that you're going to be using, if you think about figure drawing as what the fighter looks like underneath the armor, then you understand how you're going to be using it in the, in the illustration you'll be doing with it. So is there a particular piece recently that really uh, vexed you, that was hard to crack, and, and why? <laughs> Every piece has its challenges. Uh, right now I am working on uh, some beautiful uh, cards for, for Wilhelm March's game Project Dark, and they are all action poses of characters. So today I spent a lot of time working on how someone would hold a grappling hook when I did not personally have a grappling hook nor a really great image on the internet of someone holding it. So that sort of challenge was me sitting there working out the anatomy, figuring out how big a grappling hook would be, taking some reference photos, trying to understand how my hand translates to this character's hand because I have feminine hands and not every character I draw will have feminine hands. Ideally, though <laughs> you can tell some people uh, do use themselves for reference. So the number one thing an artist needs is uh, metamorphizing hands. Well, <laughs> yes, or the ability to understand the anatomy in a hand so you can use reference and translate it into what you need it to look like for the image. So from an artist's point of view, is the hand the most annoying part of the human body? I feel like the hand and the face are tied with feet a close second. Um, and when, so when you draw faces, do you um, make faces in the mirror to make sure that it, they, they work? Absolutely. All the time. I use the webcam a lot as well to take photos and flip them if I need them flipped or tilt them if I need to see a wacky angle. And I have anatomy books that I keep at my desk within arm's reach all the time to double check things, just how the facial muscles work, um, that sort of thing. I have a small anatomical cast that I purchased. It's maybe about four inches high, and it's invaluable to have something like that that you can throw a little bit of light on. I can light it from different angles, see how the light falls, where the shadows are. It has the muscles very clearly delineated. If I want to create a face that has more structure or less structure showing, and it it allows me to, to sort of just hold it at the weird angle that I'm drawing and be like, oh, this is how a lip is if you're looking at it from way down here. So what are the other sort of crucial tools and props that you have in your office? Well, I'm definitely still building a collection. I recently got a, another cast, which I definitely, when I was in art school, I was like, who would even use casts? They seem like old fuddy-duddy, like classic art studies things, but they are so useful in terms of being able to light them, being able to tilt them, and being able to look at them from all angles. So the new cast I have is a, is a full body cast and a really hilarious, like contorted yoga pose, but it lets you see how the shoulder blades move on the back, which is another challenging area to sort of get your head around as an artist. So I guess the, the final question is, if you had, uh, the, the advice you've given so far is to, uh, is to network, to research, 
and to uh, get the fundamentals and draw from life. Is there a, a final sort of less expected, uh, surprising bit of advice that you would give to people who want to do uh, illustration work on, in role-playing games or one of the many related fields? I would say that when you're working on your portfolio, when you're working on personal work, when you are sort of building a body of work that you're going to be using to hunt jobs down, it's just every time you go out and show it to someone, you're going to be reminded the stuff that you love the most is what's going to look the best, what's going to speak the most to the people that want to hire you. It's going to show on the page if you are drawing spaceships and you love them or if you're drawing spaceships. So that sort of approach, at least at the beginning, will help you have things that you want to be drawing in your portfolio. And then people will hire you based on what you have in your portfolio and hopefully you'll have a career ahead of you of only drawing what you love. Right, and th that sort of ties into a thing that I always say, which is love more than one thing. Oh my god, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that there are so many, uh, even in, in writing, that there are so many people who clearly just are writing within the genre that they love, so that the only thing they clearly ever read are uh, they're writing mecha stories and they only read other mecha stories or they uh, only read time travel or, or to broaden it out they only read you know within the geekly spheres and that uh, having references to pull in from the rest of culture is enormously important and I would imagine that that's the same for you in terms of uh, visual culture. I think the, the people want to learn how to draw dragons and the reality is that every dragon you look at is a combination of the artist knowing how to draw seven or eight other animals and also how they would pose or behave. So anytime you're working in a, a sort of a speculative or fantastic genre, you're going to have to bring things in from outside that genre to give structure and reality to what's in. And I think that's probably going for whether you're writing or drawing. Yes, the reality on which the craziness is built. Uh, well, thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, and illustrators at large, uh, take heed. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. giant glowing Lexan map on the wall, the serious-minded bureaucrats shoving tiny models around with sticks, the presence of immense reams of paper created by digital spy satellite downloads tell us we're in a torn-from-today's-headlines corner of the cartography hut. And here in the cartography hut, we are looking in on the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, or as I like to call it, the UN Office on Knights Black Agents Campaign Ideas. <laughs> and uh, Robin, you have uncovered one of their uh, extrusions that is particularly helpful, at least in sort of a big picture uh, uh, scope. So why don't you set up what you found while uh, being debriefed by a Eurocrat in a $1,000 suit. Right. So th this is a map that I first noticed on Vox.com, and it is a map of global crime, or at least a map of global illicit trade, uh, and uh, or I guess you could say organized crime. And so uh, once more in the cartography hut, we find ourselves describing a map to uh, you audio listeners, <laughs> but we'll uh, put a link to it in the show notes. And so it basically shows where the major lines of illegal trade go in the world. So, for example, we discover to our uh, shock and surprise that the Andean region uh, exports uh, a lot of one particular product. And, of course, that's cocaine. And you can see on the map that uh, a big trade flow uh, goes to uh, Central Europe and also another one through Central America up into the United States. We see that... Uh, one of the major flows of illegal migration is from Mexico into the United States, and one of the major uh, outflows of illegal guns is from the United States into Mexico. So that tells us where the cartels are getting the uh, weapons that they're uh, using to uh, kill so many people with. Um, other items that we see on the map, other crimes that are uh, mappable, are the influx of uh, trafficking for purposes of uh, prostitution. So you see that there's uh, one big outflow from Brazil into uh, Western and Central Europe, 
and another from the uh, Russian Federation. Speaking of other drugs that move around the world, of course, also unsurprising is there's a big flow of heroin from Central Asia, uh, again, into Central Europe. They don't show a corresponding one into uh, North America, which uh, strikes me as an omission because uh, uh, I understand there's probably heroin in North America. I, I think there is. I, I, this, the map is, is uh, simplified, do I want to yeah. say? It, it goes down to sort of a first order, because obviously if you look at things like the, the uh, human trafficking, there's also human trafficking into Asia and out of Asia, but to look at the map, you wouldn't know that. Or out of Africa, there's a lot of human tra- trafficking out of Nigeria, for example, of uh, Africans who want to get out of Africa and wind up being human trafficked. Uh, the overlap, for example, between what they call smuggling of migrants and human trafficking is considerably greater than the map would have you believe. So there's there's a lot of stuff going on that is not on the map, but the stuff that is on the map is at least, you know, it's a, it's a good first-order look at a lot of this stuff. Right. Uh, one of the things that I never considered as uh, an illegal trade was the illegal flow of timber, and that's from South Asia uh, through Asia into uh, Central Europe. If you look at this map, basically, uh, this map portrays uh, Western and Central Europe as the... Uh, consumer of global organized crime <laughs> and uh they've got sort of the the piracy zone on the uh eastern edge of africa and that's uh that's pretty big and pretty significant was there anything else that uh, struck you about the map in particular before we start uh, sort of extrapolating its use um i think that the thing that most surprised me i mean the only one of the of the things on the map that i didn't know was uh, cassiterite. Uh, there is a apparently a very significant, or significant enough to be on the UN map, flow of cassiterite, which is tin ore. So literally, the original strategic material, the strategic material of the Bronze Age of 1700 BC, is still a strategic enough material to make it onto the global crime map. So tin ore uh, being taken out of the eastern Congo and uh, moved into... Uh, one is, it says to Southeast Asia, but obviously what that means is into the Chinese and European uh, factories is a big uh, component of this uh, global trade, which is not something I would have bet on. I would have thought that we had moved beyond tin, but I guess I would be wrong. I bet there's a lot of tin in all of the computer components that we are currently using to produce this podcast. I am, I am certain that if we, like Timmy, had wished for a world without tin, we would have rapidly rethought ourselves. How do we then take this and make this uh, gameable? Obviously, the most obvious thing is to, that's a cool new hook for a modern uh, sort of criminal uh, spy or criminal spy plus occult game is that what the bad guys, you think the bad guys are, you know, smuggling uh, demon spore or uh, that they're engaged in, you know, that they're snake heads or they're drug dealers, but it turns out that they're, smuggling tin ore so it's it's illegal obviously to take it out of the ground unlicensed uh, in the places that it uh, starts out in mm-hmm. but that they're you know if it comes from an essentially lawless place and people are just uh, setting up mines and then shipping the tin without any taxation or government supervision that's still a uh, criminal and if you want to protect your trade from the authorities and presumably it's it's possibly also criminal on arrival, right? That they're yeah. illicitly arriving. And so you've got people trying to stop you taking it out of the ground and then also people trying to deliver it to your clients. And it's a, I think it's a conflict metal now. Right. Like the um, cobalt and uh, diamonds. Right. And obviously it, uh, on an industrial scale, whereas diamonds are really just sort of a luxury consumer product, so they don't make mm-hmm. the map. Um, and so, you know, what do you do when you discover that the thing that you're trying to stop the bad guys from transporting our, you know, container after container of, of tin ore. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that the thing about the tin is you have to, in a, in a game situation, as opposed to a real-world situation, I mean, the real world, you'd say, oh, they're smuggling tin. Well, now we know that they're going to be selling to these kinds of smelters or these kinds of clients, and we can start working backwards from that and do the slow, patient work of, of, um, uh, of finding the individual uh, smuggling ring, which, of course, once you've broken them, will have been replaced already by three other smuggling rings, because that's how supply and demand works. But uh, in a game, what you want to say is, all right, on the surface it's tin, but what are they hiding in the tin? Is tin 
uh, opaque to, to demon radiation? Is uh, Does tin ore or uh, the my go after it? I mean, there's got to be some more to tin in the concept uh, context of a game. Maybe you're smuggling it so that you can dump it through a time gate and uh, take over the Bronze Age with it. I mean, maybe that's what you're doing with it. But tin qua tin is not exciting uh, in a game concept co- uh, context, even if, you know, to people who are, you know, curious about the the, the weird way that the world economy works, tin is, is kind of uh, strange and interesting now. Timber smuggling offers a possibility that there are uh, wood nymphs or other magical beings mm-hmm. who've been... Druids. Uh, yes, that there's things that have been trapped in the sacred groves, and you could have sort of an uh, an eco-warrior uh, campaign where your mix, you know, a less stupid version of Greenpeace uh, and give them juridic powers and, uh, <laughs> or, you know, maybe Greenpeace, uh, you know, with their trampling of the Nazca butterfly, uh, you know, they're the false flag operation run by the uh, people trying to bring about the eco-apocalypse and you're the uh, right. druids trying to, uh, you know, preserve the earth. And so you're, uh, another thing on this map is uh, trade in wild animals. So you could uh, be the, uh, you know, covert eco druids trying to shut that down as well. I, I like the notion of a of something that's uh, half on back and half the prophecy. I think that yeah. there's some strong possibility there. Um, I I look at this and counterfeit medicines is another good one, right? Because you've got uh, the the fake medicines that are being made in China and India, probably in the same factories that are making the real medicines, and then being shipped to poor countries that can't that don't have a, a, a strong FDA and that and that don't have any other choice really. Um, that, that automatically makes you an, an, a contemptible sob in need of a stopping if you're shipping people fake medicine. Exactly. If you're if you're if you're looking for the people on this map most deserving of being, you know, put down with with uh, accelerated uh, game gameable force, I think that the fake medicine guys and the human trafficking guys are the ones to go after. Um, but but that whole notion, right, that you don't know what's in it, and so it could be anything. It could be you know. Uh, uh, deadly poisons. It could be the true alchemical cinnabar. It could be a triox compound that when you, enough people eat it, they start becoming werewolves or something. I mean, you, you have no idea what's in this stuff. And the fact that it's all coming out of these giant anonymous slave factories in China or these giant anonymous sweatshops in India is, you know, it, it can, it can provide a lot of real, I think, thematic depth to the notion that there's just this sort of ongoing uh, decay and, and gothic monstrosity in the shadows of the world. Um, you know, very much your esoterist notion that what goes into the label is the only truth and that what's inside the bottle is something you don't want to look at. And in an imagined world, whether that's a, a fantasy world or a science fiction world, you could then take the principle of the crime import-export map and then swap it over to your uh, fictional reality. So you can then decide, well, in my fantasy world, uh, who's smuggling what where. And so when by drawing all of these lines, each line is a, uh, a plot hook. And so, right. uh, you know, if there is uh, illegal migration, uh, that first of all implies a world that is sophisticated enough to have border controls, but uh, let's say you do, could be in a science fiction world quite easily, or even in a fantasy world, um, you have the whole question of, you know, is it just or unjust to allow this stigmatized group to move across the border to work? Are you the guys helping them get across in order to make better lives for themselves? Or are you the guys trying to stop the uh, exploitative transporters who don't care at all for their lives and will happily kill them all if necessary to avoid uh, capture? Or you can then ask yourself the question, well, in a science fiction universe, what is illegal and what gets smuggled? Could it be, you know, is there a trade in thought engrams? Uh, is there a, a trade in uh, the eggs of uh, alien sentient beings? There's all sorts of uh, ways that you can add definition to your world by building those sort of trade connections. And with illegal trade are guys with laser guns or guys with swords or, or whatever the antagonists uh, in your world would wield. And you can look at uh, places on the map, either your constructed map or the real world map, where various... Tra- illegal trades cross or, or overlap. Southeast Asia is a is a nexus of transshipment as well as a source for uh, illegal uh, timber and things like that. So 
what's your world's place where a lot of these lines cross over? Is this, so is this going to be a big pirate entrepot? Is it going to be a um, uh, anything-goes, freewheeling libertopia uh, uh, guarded by uh, uh, smiling Varangians of, of, of all species and color? Or is it going to be a, a hellish uh, temple to Mammon where they're bringing in uh, everything awful and horrible and then turning it into fat electrum by selling it on to the seemingly virtuous uh, kingdoms of uh, the North and West, as they so often are coincidentally placed, and and so when you look at the at at at, at our map, we, you see you know Central Africa is the source of wildlife, but it's also where illegal guns come. And, and what does that say about the sort of adventure that you can have, or the sort of uh, crossover of of various uh, bad cultural type guys that are that are involved? There, you could say that there's obviously you know. Uh, a deadly hunting uh, a secret society that goes around and hunts endangered and extinct animals with these super weapons that they're getting from Soviet labs in the Ukraine. And, um, uh, you know, th that could be some sort of uh, connection into your fantasy world, that that's where they were getting the, the Vorpal swords being smuggled down from a, a certain dwarf home, and so they can use those against anything, even, you know, nice Lamashu or, 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 or good um, uh, angels. And then so you've got to, you know, stop those guys. And the tradition of being the illegal uh, trader, of course, is fundamental to space opera from a Traveler and also a Firefly. And so and you, can, Solo. Um, you can be introducing other uh, questions. So it's like, well, you get this chance to uh, uh, ship medicine to this other planet, but make sure the other planet uh, doesn't know. And by the way, make sure that the uh, local guy uh, authorities don't know about the shipment either. And it's like, is it just a tax dodge or are these actual uh, counterfeit medicines? Because uh, your uh, group of uh, irresponsible devil-may-care space traders may uh, be perfectly happy to flout tax authorities, but uh, if it's a matter of actually uh, smuggling medicine that doesn't work that's the what your skeevy uh, opponent guys do and maybe you uh, come across your rivals uh, on the planet where you've got a perfectly quasi-legal uh, shipment of something that doesn't cause ethical problems but here they are selling uh, medicines that don't work do you then try and stop them or do you go on your merry way so you can for groups that are sort of centered around the idea of uh, transporting all of this stuff are you happy to uh, transport people to the sex industry on Rigel? Are they being uh, exploited, or is this sort of a utopian sex-positive universe? How do you decide uh, what jobs you take on and what you don't? Right, and uh, you know, in a world where you've got psychic uh, aliens and you've got uh, engrams and holodecks and things, it's like, no, no, you just put them all in the holodeck and they'll be totally happy. Like, that seems like a lot of people to put in the holodeck. Well, in the holodeck, it doesn't seem like a lot of people. And, you know, you're feeding them with the concentrated vitamin gas, so it's okay. And you, there, there could be a lot of questions just about packaging, much less about who you're selling what to at which end of the of the route. Another thing, of course, is, you know, when you've got two sources, right? You've got Afghanistan and Myanmar are both heroin sources. Back in the day, it used to be that Myanmar was where all the heroin came from, and poor Afghanistan, uh, sitting under the Soviet boot, was not. And so what does Myanmar think about getting cut out of that fat red arrow? Maybe they're angry about it. So if you've got two kinds of lines exporting the same sorts of things, you've got a rivalry. You've got a, a and maybe they're both skeevy bastards and maybe one of them is, you know, good looking pirates like Han Solo, but you've set up, you know, two guys who both want to sell space heroin or both want to sell fantasy heroin or both want to sell, you know, something that you're less uh, you know, conflicted about making part of your 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 game world. Um, Cassarite. Cassarite. Yeah, Cassarite. Tin ore. And and so there's a there's a rivalry over that. And that and once you have a rivalry, you have a conflict. And once you have a conflict, you have a story. Uh, well, I think we've uh, opened up uh, possibilities for a whole bunch of stories. So it's time to bounce, uh, perhaps illicitly, to our final segment. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons suggest that we're finally ramping up a vehicle that has remained dormant as we did our Dreamhounds of Paris series, but it's raring to go and so is Ken as we enter the proximity of Ken's time machine. And this week, 
uh, Lisa J. Steele has a request to change the history of the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so Ken, she asks, Japan was an ally in World War I and received a hefty amount of intelligence help from England to track the Tsar's fleet during the Russo-Japan War of 1904 to 1905. How would you ensure that Japan remains an ally of the United States uh, and, I guess, England in World War II? There's a couple of things that are in the way of this possibility. And the first is the Soviet Union. Japan uh, is not one of those countries that thinks the Soviet Union is a good idea. Uh, they are right, of course. Uh, and a lot of their foreign policy is driven by who is being meaner to the Soviets right now. And for the period of the 1930s, the answer is Hitler. Hitler is being meaner to the Soviets. And so that draws them towards the axis in what was called the anti-Comintern Pact initially, before it became the, the full-on axis. And it's a, it's a coin that a the West... They've got a surprise coming later. Oh, they sure do. No spoilers. And, and so there's a, there's, a real, there's a real impediment to bringing Japan into uh, the Western alliance system that way. Another impediment is Japan's belief that it should own Indochina, the Philippines, and uh, the Dutch East Indies, and especially the Dutch East Indies, which is where all the oil was. And while Britain might have been willing to do a lot of scummy things to its allies, it was not quite willing to sell the Dutch down the river and turn the Dutch East Indies over to the Japanese. And indeed, uh, neither Britain nor America was willing to even make sure that Japan had any amount of oil, certainly not enough to launch various aggressive wars. So there's a position where Japan's basic demands or desires in its, uh, in its stretch of the world are running into pre-existing colonial interests. And so it's going to be very hard to square that circle. That And the final element is Japan is just a problem country to change. If you look at what, you know, the, the, the Japan has had what they call the lost decade now for about 25 years as their economy continues to spiral into the ground, uh, and their demography does. The, and the Japanese know that, and they can't change it. So it's very hard, I think, to change Japan's sort of drift into totalitarianism, uh, which... Because it's, despite, a, it's a broad cultural force right, rather than it, one it, guy. And this is despite, like, I think three or four literal military coup d'etat attempts, all of which are stopped. All the guys are, are tried, and then on their trial, they'll, they'll, they stand up and they say, we only did it to make Japan better, and everyone says, yay, we love you. And so it's very hard to prosecute these guys. So there is a real social demand for recognition that is being met by these, uh, these militarists and these authoritarians, and their interests are the interests that are fundamentally opposed to Britain and the United States in the Pacific. If you want to prevent those guys from rising, I think that your best shot is to save the life of Hara Takashi, who was the first commoner to become prime minister of Japan. Uh, he was uh, became prime minister of Japan in 1918. He had a expansionist but not aggressive uh, foreign policy. He was, you know, he, he was a he was a, what does a, expansionist a, but not aggressive mean? It means that he want he wanted to make sure that Japan had, uh, you know, the, the the pole position in East Asia, but he didn't think war was the way to do it. So he uh, basically a, a trade and economic expansion, not military. Exactly, and that as long as America was willing to recognize Japan's uh, primacy in Korea and in you know part of China, he was willing to do the same for America. He was uh, a big reason that Japan was a founding member of the League of Nations. He was a um, uh, he was uh, instrumental in getting them as much recognition at the P Treaty of Versailles as they got. Uh, he was very much about expanding Japan's influence as a constructive member of the international community. And he is stabbed in 1921 by a railroad switchman named Nakaoka Konichi. And Nakaoka only does 13 years for the murder, which tells you something about the climate even in 1921. But if he's not stabbed, it's possible that he is, um, uh, he is the guy to maybe strengthen and deepen what democratic roots exist. And even that, I think, is a, is a crapshoot. Now, that said, if the United States does not pass uh, the 1924 racial exclusion laws uh, against Japan in, in terms of 
counting the Japanese as Chinese immigrants and saying that they can't come into the United States as part of the, the broader spectrum of American anti-immigration legislation, which again is a broad cultural force that's very hard for me to drink people out of. Uh, I, I think that you maybe see some possibilities of, J of Japan. But it's interesting to note that as late as 1935, uh, when Oshima is suggesting that Japan uh, ally with the Germans, other people in the Japanese Navy especially are saying, we can't ally with the Germans, we're allies of the British. Yeah, pay attention, dude. And uh, and they're very, very interested in the Japanese and the British alliance. And it's only after Japan is condemned by the League of Nations in 1937 for its invasion of China that they really flip the switch and say, fine, if uh, we're not going to get to be part of uh, your league, then we're going to go uh, buddy up with the, with the Axis completely. But the notion of the British alliance is so strong that the, they don't actually formally set up the Axis until 1940, until after uh, the Nazis have knocked Britain out of the war, seemingly, in, you know, six months. And the Japanese figure, well, we'd better get in on the winning side, because that's how we won World War I. I. I think that the Japanese, the way to keep them on side as an ally is either for Britain to maintain a strongly anti-communist foreign policy that is very cynical about the Dutch, or maybe for Britain to lean on the Dutch to guarantee Japan the ability to buy oil uh, is, is a solution. But again, you have to convince Britain that it's in their interest to do that. And this is the country that believes that Japan is no threat to Singapore. And, and uh, when the Japanese are landing in Malaya, the garrison in, the, in Singapore is saying, well, what does it matter that they're landing in Malaya, the idiots? Don't they know that Singapore is the only part worth taking? And they just sit there in their so-called impregnable fortress until they're um, uh, attacked from the landward side. And it turns out, oh, the guns don't point that way. Well, now don't we look stupid? And so getting the British to take Japan seriously enough, or similarly the Americans to take Japan seriously enough to... Uh, uh, incentivize it to join the the, the 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 normal world system in the 20s is it, it's going to be difficult so i would say that in the ken's time machine tradition that what i need to do is get uh nakaoka konichi drunk uh so that he's really really hung over uh the next morning and he can't be stabbing anybody and so uh hara takashi survives and then we see where he is in 1924 when the americans are doing their immigration restrictions, and when the uh, Washington Naval Conference is happening, the Japanese get very mad um, uh, at, uh, at the restrictions being placed on their navy, and maybe we can allow uh, some symbolic expansion of the Japanese navy uh, in a way that will not endanger the peace. And again, you know, what, once, once, you're, once you're changing things, maybe you can make sure that America and Britain r remain anti as anti-communist into the 30s as they were in the teens. But it's it's a lot of different di different approaches, and I still suspect that even if we keep Hara Takashi alive, there's just going to be another batch of guys. Because if you've got four or five military coups in eight years, you were talking about an ongoing real crisis of legitimacy in terms of the military. So uh, this is a, a, a Ken's time machine long shot at best, basically. Yeah. I think so. Um, and it would entail your having to find uh, sort of a key figure uh, who is not bolstered in our timeline in America to sort of turn back or soften the uh, anti-immigrant wave in the 20s. Is there a, a figure there that uh, who didn't get a, a, a fair shake by history that you could help out? Um, again, I think that the United States immigration laws in the 20s are so popular. I mean, they pass by huge margins. It's it's a big reaction to the huge number of immigrants that have come into the United States in the 19th century, and the revulsion at World War One. I, I think it drives a lot of it. So basically, uh, you're going to take some sake with you to Japan and and uh, give it a shot. But Lisa should not be surprised if the uh, history books say the same thing tomorrow that they say today. Yeah, the um the the chances of changing minimum two cultures. Uh, the United States and uh, Japan, or Britain and Japan, is it, it, that's a big job of work. I think that if you can strengthen Japanese democracy, Haratakashi is, is, the, is the last best place to do it. It might be that what you need to go uh, do is cure whatever neurological problems the Taisho Emperor has. Uh, the, the, the democracy rises up, ironically, because 
the Emperor Taisho is uh, kind of a weakling, and he's got a lot of neurological problems, and so a lot of the bureaucracy sort of takes power away from him, and that is what drives this demand for what they call the Shoah Restoration, to give power back to the Emperor, which means take it away from the Democrats. So perhaps if you fix whatever's wrong with the Emperor Taisho, maybe his presence as a um, uh, visible participant in the democratic process is what will provide the democratic process legitimacy. But on the other hand, it might not, because uh, there are a lot of very powerful interests in the military that are not at all interested in being told what to do by a bunch of commoners. So I guess that just proves that uh, although we have an acclaimed podcast, we can't change the time stream every other week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Neaten this institution by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or cargo container full of tin ore by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.